So if you're visiting with us this morning, there are sermon notes in the bulletin. You want to pull those out. This morning, we're not going to be in the book of 1 Corinthians because it's the Christmas season. We're in Colossians chapter 1. And what we're going to be doing is looking at verses 15 and 19 with specificity because it is the Christmas season. I thought, here's a great passage that will allow us to focus on the person of Jesus Christ so that we'll get a greater grasp of why we should marvel at the one that's born in Bethlehem. And so hopefully when it's all said and done, you will have this greater understanding. We've got this morning's message and we'll have next morning's message and then we'll focus on the birth of Jesus Christ on Christmas Eve. So hopefully you'll come back. We'll look at the Luke 2 passage on Christmas Eve. So as we get started, um, we're going to be asking this question. Why is Jesus Christ the greatest gift? Why is he someone to be marveled at as a child and one that we marvel at with his life? The great verse, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, right? Jesus Christ is a gift. He's a gift to mankind. And so we have this gift, but why is he so great? I hope today you will understand it in a greater and more affirmed way if you have believed in the past. So we start off with two big questions for you, all right? And you might want to write down your answer. And the first one is, are you happy in life? Are you a person that's happy in life? I asked a person this week, are you happy? I told them I did this after I put this message together, and they said that they weren't happy. There are people that are unhappy in this world. And I want to ask you, are you someone that is happy? And, and think of the sense of gladness, joy, in, you know, when you're all alone. Would you say I'm a happy person? Now, the second question that goes with it is this. What do you need to make you happy or keep you happy? Because if you said that you're happy, that's great. Do you need something, though, to keep you happy? Now, when I thought through these questions, I was thinking through the Christmas season because I was thinking to myself, you know, should I go down the line of, you know, what Christmas gift would be under the tree that would make you so joyous? I mean, I'm sure some people have things. Kids are all excited about Christmas. And then there's other things like, you know, does giving at Christmas time really make you happy? But I just thought we would settle on these two questions and just keep the focus right here as what would make you happy or what keeps you happy. And what I want to propose to you right now is I, as you think about this, what do you need to make you happy? What keeps you happy? I'm going to make this proposal to you, and I want to make it very clear that unless your answer was, Jesus Christ is that which keeps me happy, you are going to be bummed in life sometime, if you're not already this morning. I think the people in life who are unhappy do not have Jesus Christ at the center of their life. I believe true happiness comes from a relationship with the Lord, and and. At the heart of who you are, the heart of, of what you are as a person, the only way to have true happiness, no matter what you face, is to have Jesus Christ at the heart of your life because you have a relationship with him. And, and the, the Bible says this, that all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. And I wanted to give you two reasons 
that if you don't have sin dealt with in your life, if you don't have it from a proper perspective dealt with through coming to faith in Jesus Christ, being born again, that the reason you cannot have happiness is first and foremost is due to sin, man's joy is warped. And what I say by that is if you do not have righteousness and God's ways ruling and driving you, you're not going to look at what makes you happy the right way. For example, you might think um, some type of sexual perversion will make you happy. Some type of possession of all things would make you happy. Some activity that, you know, maybe getting high, maybe doing some other type of illicit, you know, drug, whether it's smoking pot or LSD. Maybe it's being a thief. You know, I get excitement when I steal things. I get excitement when I do this improper sexual thing. I get excited when I look at porn. I get excited. What, you know, we look at this when, you know, I have a friend. I had a friend who was a multimillionaire. He told me, Mike, I get up every day and I'm excited. I'm excited not just about how much money I make, but how much the challenges. And I would call him up and he'd say, well, I just made $20,000 this afternoon. I made $40,000 and and. And his life was making lots of money and getting these challenges. But I can tell you that, you know, if because of sin, people, what they find to bring them joy is warped. And, and I would make it really clear, you all need to grasp this. Due to sin, man's joy is warped. But there are things that happen in life that are good, like having a spouse, having children. Those aren't warped. Those are things that God wants you to have. And if you would have said, when I asked you, are you happy? What brings you your happiness? And you said, well, my family brings me my happiness. My career, having a career in and of itself isn't wrong. But this part here is you need to understand, due to sin, man's joy is short-lived. It's one of the... The, the reality of it, the theology that we understand, all have sinned, all fall short of the glory of God, but the wages of sin is death. We're going to die. And, and as much as uh, I would love to be there forever for my wife, for my children, one day I'm going to die. My wife's going to die. My, both of my in-laws that we love very much have died in the past two, three years. We die. And, you know, if I have all the wealth, all the health, everything, all these wonderful experiences. You say, well, I'm not materialistic. I'm just going to, you know, I'm going to be someone that's filled with all this knowledge and I'm going to study. All of that's going to go away because I'm going to die. You're going to die. And you've got to understand, unless you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, none of it continues. None of it goes on in a good way. So that's why I'm trying to get you to understand true joy and happiness comes from a relationship with the Lord. And so... When that question was originally asked, are you happy? And with the second question, what makes you happy or what keeps you happy? If it is not a relationship with Jesus Christ, then you are on a wrong path. But today, we who are believers, could, if we're saying it is Christ, it is Christ and Christ alone that are, is our focus, then it is that which drives us to understand why we should be so excited about Christmas, because we understand it's when God comes to earth to, die, to eventually die to pay the penalty for our sins. Our focus uh, is understanding who this Christ is. 
apart from Jesus, apart from God, the Bible tells us in the book of Isaiah, and this is supposed to be a soldier here. I, I found this. There's a, there was a website. No peace for the wicked. The Bible is clear. All have sinned, and there is no peace for the wicked. There is no joy. There is no long-lasting tranquility apart from Jesus Christ. So we need to have answered that question, am I happy? You should say yes, because I have my focus on Jesus Christ. Verses that speak of the believer's joy. I, I didn't want to put these up here. I want you to turn to them, and you could listen to these, because when I talk about the believer's joy, this, isn't, this is the happiness that comes from inside that, boi- that boils over and goes into all aspects of your life. And when you look at this concept of joy, I, I do put it on the same level of happiness and, and blessing and a, the equivalency of, of a, a, a contentment. The Bible is filled with these verses. And, and so look at, like, if you were to turn your Bibles to Philippians 4.4. Philippians 4.4, um, I didn't want to put these on the screen. I wanted you to get a feel for these, these books. Philippians 4.4, the Apostle Paul has this famous line. It's in a book that the Apostle Paul is writing from prison. Being in prison is not a fun time when the Apostle Paul writes. I have done prison ministry. I've been in modern-day prisons where they got cable TV. (laughs) They have have three meals a day. They have places to exercise. They've got libraries they can have access to. There's a lot of great things that go on inside a prison today. I mean, there's in the sense of, of amenities. Well, when the Apostle Paul writes, he's writing from a place where, you're, where it was often cold and damp. Your friends had to bring your food. Your friends had to bring blankets. The Apostle Paul writes Philippians 4.4 and says, Rejoice in the Lord. Again, I say rejoice. The book of Philippians is a book in which the Apostle Paul uses the word joy in different forms 16 or 17 times. And you've got to say, are you crazy? How can you have that sense of joy? Well, he understands that it doesn't matter about my external circumstances on this world. It doesn't matter what I get for a Christmas gift or not. It doesn't matter what I have as an asset for my life, it's because I've got a relationship with Jesus Christ. Rejoice in the Lord. Again, I say rejoice. Then you've got the book of James, written by the brother of Jesus. You flip over there. It's one of the most famous verses from the perspective of dealing with trials. James chapter 1, verse 2 says this, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. James says, consider it all joy. How in the world can I consider trials joy? Trials should be the stopping of joy. When I consider it a joy, when I consider it a joy, how can I have that perspective? Well, I have that perspective because I recognize that God is working in my life and it's working and molding me and shaping me into the image of Jesus Christ who my entire focus is on. So the reason I can have joy is because I recognize when someone asks me, what, <laughs> am I happy and what makes me happy? I say, Jesus. 
And a trial is all designed because life isn't happenstance. Life has a purpose because my God is sovereign that things are working out to make me more like Jesus Christ and to have the right orientation, the right focus. And so instead of having despair, because I'm so focused and wanting to be like Jesus, I consider trials joy. But then you've got a passage like 1 Peter. And I tell you, the book of 1 Peter, every one of you should know the theme of it. The theme of 1 Peter is how you suffer and go through trials. Now, it's interesting, whether it's Philippians or 1 Peter, one of the themes that runs through it is sovereignty, how God is in control of everything. And in 1 Peter, you have all of this suffering that's going on, suffering from a bad government, suffering from, from unjust government, suffering from an unjust boss, suffering when you've got a lousy spouse, suffering when you have, you know, just things go bad in your life. And this line that starts this off, I want you to listen to it. We're going to jump from verse 3 to verses 7 to 9. 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Then you jump down. So that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. That line, I, I bolded in my own notes, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible. What do you mean? You're writing to people who have been dispersed. You're writing to people who have lost everything. But they have everything. And, and this is why, for you know, if I could say to myself sometimes the only thing that doesn't bring me you know, joy in this world is the fact that, that I see people that I love not having faith, not being believing. I can tell you honestly, I, you know, sometimes I give this little challenge to myself. If, if, if God came to me and said, Mike, I will give you anything that you want, anything that you want right now, anything that you want. I can tell you over and over, I just start coming through. Okay, God, here's 100 people that I want saved. I want that. It's the only thing I want. And I can go through it. And sometimes I push it, and then I go 100 and 200. And I say, this is what I want. This is what I've got to have. Because joy, having people born again, is the only thing that matters. It's the only thing that takes, you know, really takes, should take away from our joy. The, Paul says, you know, I mean, P- Peter is saying this in the midst of an incredible series of trials that he's writing this about a joy that's inexpressible. Then, I, I won't go into these passages as much, but Romans chapter 15, verse 13, talks about the fact that God is going to fill us with joy. He says, now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace and believing so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's for now. This is my hope and desire for all of you that you have this joy so, so that it's, it's, it's separate from whatever circumstance, whatever reality you're going through, that you have this joy. And I'm hoping that today as we focus on Christ, it'll be a reminder of why you should have this joy. Where we who are believers should have this joy. And then passages like Proverbs chapter 10, 
Verse 28 says, the hope of the righteous is gladness, but the expectation of the wicked perishes. There is a sense where, you know, we have a hope that will be an ultimate fulfillment of joy. Look, you know, if my spouse died, if my children died, if I lost all my assets, I don't have my head in the sand and say, oh, you know, that's just wonderful. No, it would be painful. We're not ignorant of the reality of, of you, know, you know, we go through trials and say to ourselves, oh, these things don't matter. They do matter. I do want my wife to live. I do want my children to be healthy. I do want to have food on the table. I do want to have a home over our head. You know, so I want you to grasp that God, I, I think, gives us that understanding that we can have good things. And that's why I went with this next passage. I went with this. I want you to understand as we come to celebrate Christmas, it's okay to celebrate Christmas. All right. But as the Apostle Paul says in the book of Philippians, and this one I did put up for you, so for time's sake, where he says, not that I speak from want, for I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I've, I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. And in, in any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being fulfilled and going hungry, both of having abundance which, and suffering need. Listen, there are passages that talk about if you want to worship honor on a holiday, go right ahead. If you want to celebrate birthdays, Christmas, Thanksgiving, go right ahead. It's your choice. And I've had people come through and say, oh, I don't want to celebrate birthdays. I don't want to celebrate Christmas. Well, fine, that's your choice. But if you do, you're perfectly free to do that. And it also, the Bible's clear, it is not wrong to be wealthy. If somebody has money, it's not wrong. So the Apostle Paul, I'm not going to go down that full path, but I want you to understand the secret, I bolded this, of being filled and, go, uh, and, and also going hungry is that I can do all things through him who strengthens me. The Apostle Paul who writes in the Philippians, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. who uses joy 16 or 17 times in the book of Philippians. Gives you the secret of life, having a relationship with Jesus Christ. You will not be happy. You will not be happy. You'll use drugs. You'll use sex. The reason people, if you say to yourself, listen, the reason I keep going to, to, to use drugs or going to porn or going to you know, just rest or laziness, you figure out whatever thing is taking you away from God, it is because that you're thinking this is going to bring you your joy. But it doesn't. The only thing that lasts is Jesus, is a relationship with God. And so... If you don't listen to me this morning, if you decide that you're going to still do it your own way, you're going to be on a vicious cycle. You are guaranteed that you're going to make bad goals, you're going to have bad actions, bad seeds, bad results, and it's just going to keep on going and you're just going to be miserable. And this is the truth. And you can use this with sharing with people. Because the reality of it is, is this is why you see people, they just continue to go down these patterns. And the Bible does talk about life having patterns. And, and Romans chapter 6 is trying to break those that were, were considered to be dead to sin and no longer let sin reign over us. So if you want to understand habits and how to break them, there's a passage in Romans 6 that I think is a great text that you would understand. But listen, the person that says, this is what I want. I want some earthly goal to be my passion, you're just going to keep on going and you're never going to find happiness. You're going to die. You're going to die even if 
you know, you get all the gold and all the stuff that you really want in this world. When it's all said and done, you can't keep it because you die. <laughs> you know? So this is what we need to grasp. How Christ is our sufficiency. And I, I taught the book of um, Colossians. I think it was like 2002 here. Um, some of you were here. Some of you weren't. Um, I recommended this book then and I recommend it now. John MacArthur wrote a book that is primarily a study of the book of Colossians. Colossians is a book that really gets into how Christ is sufficient. And the, I wish we had um, more time, but you can go through whether it's philosophy or religious approaches where, hey, hey, you want to be really religious? Do not taste, do not touch, do not handle. And God is saying, that is not what I'm talking about. I want you to focus on Jesus Christ and how Christ is sufficient. Well, you should have this type of philosophy of how you, how you, how you mature, and these are the ways that you mature in Christ. And let, look, unless it's by faith alone and Christ alone and, and, and taking in God's word, it's not the right way to grow. I want you to focus on Christ. And so I highly recommend this book if you want to grasp this, con this concept of Christ's sufficiency all the more. But what, what I'm going to do this morning is try to focus you on some key aspects of why Christ is so, so sufficient. So look in chapter 1 of Colossians. As the Apostle Paul is so thankful for their faith, he says this in verse 9. For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with, all, with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might, for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience. Underline this. Joyously giving thanks to the Father, who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints and the light. You might have missed that word. It's like, I don't know why. It's like they divided the verse right there. But... The reason you can joyously give thanks, no matter what you face, is because you have a right orientation of where life is going, who's in control, who is going to take care of you when it all ends. You joyously give thanks. The Apostle Paul is so grateful that the people he believes at Colossae are totally transformed, and they're really believers. And he recognizes that if they're filled with this understanding of who God is, this, I think, will prompt them all to be more thankful. And so he says in verse 13, For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. See, it's only through Jesus Christ that we're brought into, I say, God's team. I don't think this is teaching that we're in the kingdom now. That's a path I don't want to go down with. But, but the idea that we're, we're transformed, we're transferred, we're, we're brought in, we're made citizens. It, it's like official designation. It'd be like if all of a sudden, you know, we'd say we're all Americans here, but someone came and gave us a stamp and on our passports, it would say, no longer a citizen of the U.S., you are a citizen of heaven. That's, I believe, what is being communicated there. That we are now guaranteed to be in the kingdom, in God's kingdom, that goes on for all eternity. He's transferred us, not because we've earned it, but because we believe that Jesus died and paid the penalty for our sins. And unless you have believed that, there is no hope for you. There, there isn't anything that will ever make you happy permanently. 
And I would just tell you that you need to believe. It was interesting. I um, was listening to a 1950s sermon of Billy Graham this week. And how poignant it was, how timely it was. Um, and in it, he, he was talking about the need for people to repent, to place their faith in Jesus. And when he said this, he said, you know, when I tell someone they're a sinner and that Jesus is God and man, he died on the cross to pay the penalty for their sins. And someone says, well, how am I supposed to believe? What am I supposed to do? He says, I don't know. In the sense, I, it's a supernatural event. If you're truly a believer, or God is opening your eyes, he will make that happen. And that's my hope for everyone here, is that that has happened. Because it's a reality that you know if you're born again. And I would say to you, and if you're not able to recall when you've seen the light bulb go on, you've seen the transformation, keep searching. Because call out to God, because it's the only thing that really matters. Why does it that true? Because look what he says next. He says, well, picking up in verse 14, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He's speaking of the Son, and he says, and he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Now, we'll pick up the next verses next week, but let's just talk about this. What I want you to understand is the Apostle Paul stops right here, and he says, basically, this is why you need to be excited. This is why what you need to understand, why Jesus is so efficient. And he goes through these reasons. He's going to talk about the fact, and you can fill in the blank, that Jesus is God. If you have your sermon notes, that he's God. And I'm going to go through all of these real quick, but I'm going to reiterate them. So you're, this is one time I've ever done this. All the fill in the blanks. You're going to see that he's the icon of God. You're going to see that he stands first before all creation. You're going to see that he's the creator. And you're going to see that he preexisted. And you're going to see that he sustains all things. And all of these things come under this category that should, I should have had underlined, that he is God. And you see in verse 15... When it says, and he is the image of the invisible God, everything from that point down, from verse 15 to 17, begins to describe the pronoun he, which refers to the son, which was referenced earlier. And it's all about the fact that he is God. All of these things describe God. When we see the word God, it becomes such a commonplace term that you banner about. But it is important that you at least look at these key and i say key because there's multiple other characteristics of god but i just thought let's just pick these top four when you talk about god you're talking about an eternal being eternal meaning that no beginning no end and i'm going to use this later but it's mind-boggling i can't think of anything not having a beginning i remember trying to contemplate it when I first became a believer. I've tried to contemplate it when, you know, hear the concepts of God. How could you not have a beginning? How could you not have an end? That's what makes you God. This is what makes us different from all other religions because we recognize the foolishness of, of religions that, number one, teach that you could become a God because the very nature of God is that he's eternal. 
we who are hum humans have been born. Therefore, we can't be eternal. The, the very nature of who we are, being born people, prohibits us from being God. Then you get into the omnis, omnipotent, all-powerful, omniscient, all-knowing, omnipresent, all places, all ways. And you say to yourself, well, how could somebody do that? How could somebody be so powerful? How could somebody be so all-knowing? How could somebody be present? That's the very nature of what makes him God. Th th these are things that as you study and we you look at these characteristics, these are what make him God. And we're going to see, well, wait a second, you're saying, well, Jesus, isn't he human? Well, he was God who became man. And, and, and this is what is different than when we look at the cults and we look at religions that say Jesus was a man who became a God. And, and we need to tell and proclaim people the difference. They need to understand it. But on this day, remember, I'm trying to think, what makes you happy? What makes you happy? I'm saying it has to be a relationship with Jesus. Why? Why is Christ sufficient? It's because he is good and he is kind and he is able to help you no matter what you face. Now, you may not get the help on this side of eternity the way you want, but we're guaranteed that eternity is going to be good. Proverbs chapter 14 the proverb that's always perplexed me, and it talks about from the perspective, it doesn't say what to do or what not to do. It just says this reality, that the poor are hated by many people, but the rich man has many friends. And I think about that because it, all it's trying to say is that there's this reality that mankind fixes on, and they understand. If somebody's wealthy, they can help you out. If somebody's poor, often they just become needy, and they're just taking things from you. Now, Shows the love of God because God goes to needy people who constantly, he wants to be there to give the resources. I want you to use that wisdom. What, when it says for hum, humans to understand there's an affinity, oh, we want to be with someone who's rich because they're going to help you. The ultimate person that everyone here should want to be with is God. You want to be with him because he alone can help you. And he's the richest of riches. So let's go into this, all right? So we go into these characteristics. And why is he sufficient? This description makes it clear. The very first thing is that he's the icon of God. Look at verse 15. It says, he is the image of the invisible God. That Greek word there is a, it sounds like the English word that we have, icon. It's the image. It's the idea, the idea that... Jesus Christ represents God. Now, if I go back, I hope I can get this backwards. Whoops. Um, when I showed you this picture back here, I wanted to picture light because 1 Timothy chapter 6 has this great verse. And it's a verse that, that gives us some insight into... Where is my verse? Um, into, yeah, into the very nature of God the Father. And it says this, in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 16, it says about God, God the Father, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to him be honor and dominion. Amen. Now, I'm not trying to portray that that's God. I'm saying that's just light. 
And, and, and the reality of it is, is, and I use it here, is that he's the icon of God. The idea here of this light, when we see what 1 Timothy 6 says, that there's some type of light that is even unapproachable. It gives us insight into the incredible very nature and very being of who God is. You can't even see it. You can't even get near it. I don't know if anyone's ever flashed a light right in your eyes, right? And it blinds you. That's the kind of light that is even beyond what this type of light is. And so, so that God can relate to us, he sends Jesus, and it isn't just so that we can relate. We know he comes to die for us, but he has this icon, the image. Jesus Christ is the icon, the image of God. And we know that the Bible says that man was created in the image of God, and we could go down the theology of what's called communicable and incommunicable attributes. God has attributes that he, only he alone has, in, uh, the, the omnis and the, and the eternal nature, but then God can love and, and we can love and God can be kind and we can be kind. We can feel, God can feel, you know, to a certain extent. So there's a great theology on what the full extent of that man being made in the image of God is. But this is more dealing with how Jesus becomes something that we can understand and how we can re he represents that invisible light. So, you, you know, if you had to stare at this, you wouldn't understand. But Jesus, whatever form, however he looked, we understand he was, a, he was a man. He was a person. Mankind, male and female, is made in the image of God. But Jesus came as a man, and we understand this. This is mind-boggling when you understand eternality. You understand omnipotence, omniscient. And you look at this baby that's supposed to be born in a manger and you say to yourself, how in the world could the creator who, when we start to study that space and it's from 14 billion light years across and there's, what do they say, there's a billion stars in the Milky Way galaxy and, 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 and there's hundreds of millions of different galaxies out there and solar systems, I mean, yeah, different solar systems. And you begin to imagine the incredible realm of greatness of who God is, and you're telling me this baby in the manger? That is that God who's come to explain the invisible light? Yes, that's why we should be marveling at Christmas. And so the icon, Jesus as an icon, represents like an imprint. So I don't know if you can see this. This is like one of those like, you know, stamps. You got wax and you have a ring and you, I think, I know my wife has some of these. You press down and it leaves an imprint. That, that, that's sort of like what we're trying to say here. And I tell you, this picture doesn't come off good, but I got to tell you, in, in trying to find an explanation, this was one of the all-time greatest illustrations. And I was going to make my own, but I thought these people who came up with this need to get the credit. What this is supposed to be is a mirror. And what this is supposed to be here is holding up the, sheet, the words, the image of the invisible God. And as it is reflecting in a mirror, that's supposed to be a person, a person's head. I, I, I just think it's, it's, it's fascinating. Somebody grasp it. You see, Jesus Christ reflects God. Jesus is a representation of God. And... To the extent that I can explain it just as that, that Jesus has come and the God who is the one who dwells in invisible light 
manifests himself in, the, in a person that looks and is human is mind-boggling. But if you don't connect the dots and you just stand back and say, well, Jesus is great, Jesus is wonderful, then you're stopping short. The reason you must marvel at this all the more is that because this is the one that's there to help you. This is the rich man that's there to help you. This is the all-powerful, the all-knowing, the omniscient. This is the one that's there to help you. There is no other being that will bring you happiness and joy greater than Jesus. This is why you should, on Christmas and every day, should think, I can't believe I've got a relationship with him. And it doesn't end there. Look at second. He's the image, image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. This is a Greek word, protokos, firstborn. There's a different word in Hebrew that has the same meaning. It is a word that carries the idea of not like first in creation, but of being um, first before all creation, about, about being honored over all. It was, it's used in the sense of who gets all the honor. Jacob and Esau, two brothers from the Old Testament. Um, oh boy, how we get this right? Esau was born first. The firstborn would always be the one that was honored. But Jacob was the one that was called the protocos in the Old Testament because he was the one that was getting all the honor. Jesus Christ, this is not teaching like the cults teach that he was a created being. What it's trying to say is that Jesus Christ is the one that's honored over everything. Jesus is the one that inherits everything. Jesus is the one who inherits everything. Again, wouldn't you want to be his friend? I mean, if, if the rich man is the one that has everything, you want to be his friend. This is the one when the Bible says the meek shall inherit the earth. The only reason we inherit the earth is because Jesus is the one that owns all the cattle on the hill. He's the one that God gives the title deed to the earth. That's the book of Revelation. The, the idea that Jesus Christ is able to take the scroll. He's the one who's going to be able to take ownership. 1 Corinthians 15 talks about him being the one that's going to be ruling and reigning and taking ownership of everything. So why are we excited? Because when the Apostle Paul here is talking about, hey, we can give joy and you can be thankful. You've been redeemed. You haven't been redeemed by someone that's inconsequential. You haven't been put on a team that's going to lose. You're going to be with one that inherits everything. And that's why you should always say, okay. And, and I've looked at this and I've said to myself, there are a lot of things I want to do in life. There's a lot of things I've wanted to see in life. But I can say to you, because I know that I'm, I've got time. And what can it come for that? I know that if Jesus wants to give it to me on this side of eternity, great. But if I don't get it now, the Bible talks about how he'll take care of me in heaven. And so it, it's just a function of learning. This life is a trial. Are you going to trust him? Are you going to trust him that it will come at the right time for you? Because he is the protocost. He is, look at verse 15, the firstborn of all creation. He is the one that is the chief honored one. He's the one that inherits everything. But then it doesn't stop there. It goes, he is the creator. In verse 16, for by him all things created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones and dominions or rulers and authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. 
I don't have time to go all, all the details, but the idea here is that he is the creator. He's the one that made everything. And, and I put this, you know, Elohim from in the beginning God created the world. Um, in the beginning God created the world. The, the idea of the word God there is Elohim. All, it's the Hebrew word almighty, all powerful. Um, when we look at the order of the creation and the Godhead, there are passages that talk about the Father through the Son by the Holy Spirit. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And we learn, like in Proverbs chapter 8, how the Son took play, did, played a role. Um, John chapter 1, how Jesus played a role. We, I think we even studied it last week. The idea of all three members of the Godhead played a role in creation. And I put this over here. There's a timeline. You know, if the timeline of human history is about 6,000 years or so, whatever we think human history is, the reality of it is, is when you think of a creator, he's outside of time. That's what Genesis 1-1 is. He, he creates time. He creates space. He creates matter. And that becomes mind-boggling. But isn't that what Jesus is trying to do when he does turning water into wine? I, can, I control all of creation. And if you need new eyes, if you need new legs, I can generate that. Now, I wish that Jesus was letting us do that today. You know, I was I could be a pastor. I was in the hospital last night. I could have gone to the fifth floor, fourth floor, third floor, just emptying all the beds. But that's not for me to do right now. The Bible, I think, makes that clear. Our point is, is that Jesus Christ is the creator and he is able at any time any moment to make bread out of rocks people who believe out of rocks jesus is able to do anything because he is the creator and if you think about this like how mind-boggling this is that you have a relationship with the creator and no resource no resource is out of his reach there's anything that you need, he can provide it at any moment, any time. And it's not like, you know, I have a bank account, and if everybody asked me for money this morning, and I started passing it out, eventually I would exhaust all my resources. You could go to God, and he will never exhaust his resources. And, and, and when he goes into heaven, we never have to worry about anything being exhausted. How could you not find joy in a relationship with Jesus? This is why it has to be the bedrock. And I'm telling you, if when I asked you that question and you didn't say, Jesus, to, I want you to start reorienting your mind. If you're truly a believer, it's got to be this focus. Otherwise, you're fighting despair. You're fighting being unhappiness. And you are in a vicious cycle, too. Now, the unbeliever, I would say, didn't find Jesus this morning as their, their, their perspective, as what brings happiness. But you need to. And if you're an unbeliever, you need to reorient it. Because the only thing that can make you really happy is Jesus. Now, I jumped ahead because this deals with the preexistence. Because you look at the very next line, and it says, verse 17, he is before all things. Okay? The idea is, is that he is before all things. He existed before anything was made. The idea here, again, comes to the grasp of a mind-boggling concept because... How could Jesus exist before anything was made? Well, it's because he's eternal. And it is, again, that which makes him God, that which makes him special, that's what makes him different. And one of the things I want you to understand in trying to find my joy out of God is because if he controls all things and he really pre-exists and he's eternal, is he never runs out of time. 
you know, I'm going to come. More than anything in the world, I want to make, make a difference in people's lives. Make a difference in your lives, make a difference in my wife's life, my children's lives. But I'm going to come to the end of my life, and I'm going to die. And guess what I'm going to say? I've run out of time. And you're going to run out of time. We're all going to run out of time on this earth. But because Jesus is my friend, he's going to give me, because he is the creator, and he has said, I have the ability to give you a new body. And I've got the ability to give you a new body in which you never sin and which will never break down. And I'm going to give you time because I make time. And I'm going to give it to you. My goodness, I win. I'll never run out of time. How can I be someone that has despair? You know, (laughs) this world is, (laughs) is talking about all the Christmas stuff that will make people happy. Whether it's a brand new car on Sunday on, on Christmas morning, or the perfect Christmas present, or the perfect Christmas experience, we all want things. I get that. We're not made in a vacuum in which things don't matter. I get it. You should cut off my arm; it's going to hurt. I would not want to go through life like that. But if I did. The reality of it is there has to be a reason that God would want me to go through that. There has to be a reason that God puts you through certain trials. Because we recognize these trials are trying to get us to focus on Jesus. To get the right orientation, the right focus. And some of you are going through the same trials over and over and over. Because he can't get you to focus on that which is the right thing. You've got to mature. You've got to get this down. He preexisted. Time is his, and I'll quickly do this last one. It, 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 I put it out there, it's an incredible mystery. But look at, fifth, he sustains all things. It says in verse 17, and in him all things hold together. The idea here is mind-boggling, again, that he is holding everything together. You know, this is a truth that's taught in Hebrews chapter 1. It's taught here. He, he sustains things. He holds all things together. And I've said this before, when I was a kid, when I grew up, I just knew the atom, proton, electrons, neutrons, right? Did I get all three? Did I get all three? So, so now they're able to say, we're able to break down the atom to these, micro, these smaller particles, the quark particles. And they're able to examine them all. And when they look at them, the scientists today are marveled at the fact that we don't know what holds them all together. But we do. This whole room, every one of you are made up of millions of atoms right now. This room is made up of millions of atoms. The the, the floor, the the state that we live in, the country we live in, it's mind-boggling. But God is holding it all together. And he is sustaining it all. And he can arrange things and move things any way he wants. That's why when he's on earth and he sees, when Jesus is on earth and he sees a man with a withered leg, boom, I give the man a withered leg, a new leg, just like that. And he doesn't take him 24 hours to work off the new leg. He's able to get up and walk right away. Can't G- won't Jesus take you and give you everything that you need one day? Absolutely. And if you don't have it now, there's a reason you don't have it now. I've got to come to that humble reality that God has different rhyme and reason and purpose for all the things that we go through. But I've got to believe that that God loves me and it's in my good that I don't have what I want right now. But I know that he has said that he is going to give me a new body. He's going to wipe away every tear. 
And, and so there's an inner joy. So when the Apostle Paul is in prison, he says, rejoice in the Lord. Again, I say rejoice. And that should burn in your soul. It is horrible if we as Christians are people who are coming to Christmas and, and saying, oh, I despair. I despair about this. I despair about that. I want this to reiterate in my own life that there needs to be this focus. I have a relationship with Jesus Christ who's able to sustain everything. He is the one that's the icon. He is the one that is the, the, the firstborn. He's the inheritor of everything. He is the one that's the creator. He is the one that is eternal. He existed for all things. How can I be sad? I've got the greatest relationship in the world. And, and I win, and you win. What I want us to understand is if we are people that truly, truly grasp this, that we should find our sufficiency in Christ. I put this image up here because I wanted to give you, this is an illustration I've used before, and I think it's one of the greatest illustrations about our sufficiency in Christ that I could ever give you. William Randolph Hearst was a man who lived in the early 1900s. Um, he was the man that owned uh, this is, um, 28 different newspapers. I think there, you could still see on some of the newspapers that were called the Hearst Enterprises. He's the man that they made the movie Citizen Kane about, okay? And he, was, they, they, he had this castle. It's in, I think it's in Simeon, California, I've gotten there. Becky and I have been there. It's one of the most phenomenal places in the entire world. You have, if you ever get a chance to go to it, go. It, it, this, like, he, what, he did, what he did was he would travel the world. He's one of the wealthiest men to ever live in the entire world's history. He would go over, and he'd see a swimming pool. He'd see this in Greece, and he'd say, this is the most marvelous swimming pool I've ever seen. He didn't say... I want you to build me a swimming pool like this. He bought the swimming pool and had it brought over. He would go, he, and you walk through this house, and it's phenomenal. You see the ceiling. It's the most phenomenal ceiling. He would be walking through a place like in Italy and say, I, I think the ceiling is great. I, I want it. And then he'd have his people take it apart piece by piece. Walls, buildings, paintings, everything. Well, where this story comes about is that one day he sees something or he, like he's reading about it, and it's, it, it's, it could, it's an artifact. I can't remember right now if it's a painting, it's a picture, or whatever. And he says to his assistant, get me that. Get me that. And he sends the assistant on this search, and the, search, the assistant goes, this is a true story. He, he goes all through Europe. He goes all through Asia, and he's searching and searching and searching. And it takes, I don't know, several, half a year, a year, and he finally comes back, and he says, Mr. Hurst, I found it. It's back here in your storehouse. You owned it. Where does this come into play? You're miserable because you're looking for that which you already own. Is Jesus Christ really the one you have a relationship with? Is he really the one that owns everything? And he has said, I'll give you whatever you want. Is he the one that has promised you everything? Absolutely. I mean, it's either he has or he hasn't. It is absolutely foolish for us to go searching the world for that which we already own. It is what we have now. We have it. That's why the Apostle Paul could be in prison and say, I rejoice now. This is why Paul could tell the people of Colossians, have a joy inexpressible now. 
Now, if you've never given your life to Jesus, if you've never repented and turned and believed that he was the one who paid the penalty for your sin, I'm going to say, yeah, you're miserable. But Christmas is so special because Jesus is special. And all those descriptions, I didn't want to repeat them, about being the one that is the icon, the firstborn, the one who inherits. He is the creator. He's preexisted. He's the one that sustains everything. And the incredible reality of it is, is that this one who is God come to earth as a human who could have just said, sit back and serve me. We have explicit passages that said he came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom. Jesus died and paid the penalty. And today I challenge you, believe in him because he is able to fix whatever you're going through. If you're lonely, if you're unhappy, would you please finally just turn to Jesus because the only place you can find is true happiness is in him. And, and sin will not make you happy. There is no peace for the wicked. There is no peace. And I, I know we all go through it. There, there are times I, 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 when I start to get my focus off. And I, I'm not any different than you. There's times I'll wake and I say, I'm a little depressed. I'm a little bummed today. It's, but it's important that I hear this myself and get reoriented and remember who Jesus is. If you're, you need to believe this for salvation and then for life. And let's pray that we do. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for an incredible passage that helps us understand why Jesus is so special. And I'm hoping that these five topics that we went through will be things that everyone here dwells upon, thinks about. I pray that the illustration of William Randolph Hearst will be something that people will grasp about the sufficiency of Christ. Use this in a way for years to come for us as believers so that we who go through a world that's constantly telling us you need something else, you need something more. The advertisements can bring us to a point of despair. The false aspects of the Hallmark Christmas specials where everyone's happy and every family's perfect, which we all love and we all enjoy and they all bring tears to our eyes and I enjoy them myself. But Lord, this is a false world and the only true happiness is found in you. And I'm praying that if someone today is in their sin and not a believer, that they're recognizing the misery that sin brings and that only true happiness is found in you. May they turn to you and believe. And may us as believers take to this message and be fruitful all the days of our lives. May we find true joy in you. In Christ's name.